Thanks, Evan, and good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here inside the sanctuary. Thank you for being uh, outside as well, and thanks for all of you who are uh, streaming online with us. Uh, I'm not sure how you come in this morning. If you are feeling frustrated, upset, maybe you're lonely, afraid, joyful, hopeful, uh, sure of your faith in Jesus, unsure of your faith in Jesus, uh, we're glad you're here, however you come. And I do know that you could be doing many other things uh, this morning than worshiping with us. Uh, you could be eating donuts this morning in your jammies. You could be uh, watching a movie. You could be going on a hike because we've got beautiful weather. You could be catching up on The Bachelorette if that's your thing. Uh, but you definitely could be listening to over hundreds of other churches online right now. Uh, but for some reason, you've chosen to be with us, and we're really thankful and glad that you are here. Next week's the beginning of Advent, as Evan uh, shared at the beginning, and we will enter into this season with a new sermon series titled Come Lord Jesus, looking primarily at the prophet Isaiah. Uh, this morning we're finishing up our series uh, titled Answering Jesus. And we've been looking at 12 differing questions that Jesus asked. Jesus asked over 300 questions, and we've just chosen 12 of those in this series. Jesus was and is the master question asker. He always asked the the right question at the right time. Because a good question has the power to open something inside of a person. It helps us realize something we didn't perceive or even understand. And Jesus' questions, they're always invitations into relationship with himself, wherein the door of our hearts are opened to understand ourselves, to understand our need for God, and to understand the nature of God's kingdom. To finish our series, we're going to Look at this last question. Perhaps it's the question, the most important question of all. And the question that we hear Jesus ask this morning is, do you love me? Do you love me? Henry Nouwen wrote in his book, Jesus, A Gospel. He says, this, uh, the question is not, how many people take you seriously? Or how much are you going to accomplish? Or can you show me some results? But are you in love with Jesus. Listen to what Nowen continues to write. He says, perhaps another way of putting the question would be, do you know the incarnate God? In our world of loneliness and despair, there's an enormous need for men and women who know the heart of God, a heart that forgives, that cares, that reaches out and wants to heal. In that heart, there is no suspicion no vindictiveness, no resentment, not a tinge of hatred. It is a heart that wants to only give and receive love in response. The question Jesus asked Peter, the question he asked us this morning, do you love me? It's not a question of indictment, but rather an invitation to experience his heart of love. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to look at John chapter 21. Verses 15 to 19, we give attention to the reading of God's word. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Pray with me. Lord, we are thankful that you speak to us, that you engage us right where we are. You ask us questions to draw us into relationship. And this morning you ask us this question, do you love me? And it's an invitation to really know your love. And, and so I pray that we might leave here rooted and established, restored in the love of Christ that abounds to us. I pray that you would speak and that me, the preacher, would get out of the way so Christ and Christ alone is encountered. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, seven years ago, I read the autobiography of Andre Agassi titled Open. Uh, Agassi, one of the best tennis players of all times, uh, writes in his autobiography with much vulnerability and transparency. And in it, he revealed that he always hated tennis with a dark and secret passion because of his overbearing father. This is what he wrote. He said, my father yells everything twice, sometimes three times, sometimes 10. Harder, he says, harder. Hit it earlier, Andre. Come on, Andre. Hit it earlier. Crowd the ball. Crowd the ball. Now he's crowding me. He's yelling. It's not enough to hit everything the dragon fires at me. My father wants me to hit it harder and faster than the dragon. He wants me to beat the dragon. Andre was seven years old in 1997, and the dragon was a ball machine that his dad, Mike, a former Olympic boxer from Iran, turned into the beast. Andre wrote this. He said, nothing sends my father into a rage like hitting a ball into the net. He foams at the mouth. My arm feels like it's going to fall off, and I want to ask how much longer pops but I don't ask. I hit as hard as I can and then slightly harder. In 1992, 25 years later, Agassi recalls calling his dad after winning the Grand Slam at, uh, title at Wimbledon and his father's initial reaction was this, Andre, you had no business losing that fourth set. Agassi's father could not accept failure. So for Andre, the love of his father felt contingent upon performance and success. And the sad reality is that many of us have grown up feeling very similarly. We feel loved when we perform well, when we succeed. And also realize that there are a good number of you who maybe have experienced an absence of love because of neglect. So as a result, we can spend our lives working to succeed or working to be noticed because we want to feel loved. And the temptation within our Christian faith, if we are a Christian, is to transpose this view onto our relationship with God. We think God loves us when we perform. And if we fail or mess up, then we think, man, God is going to kill me. Because deep down, if we're honest, we think God is like Andre Agassi's father. Or maybe we think God is absent and therefore God just, he doesn't really care. So let me ask you a question that was asked to me years ago that helps get to the root of what I'm talking about. What do you think God thinks about you when you sin? When you fail, 
how do you think God views you? Our passage today shows us what Jesus does with failed disciples. We see this in his interaction with Peter. The first time that uh, Jesus saw Peter, he said, so you're Simon, son of John. And he said, from now on, you're going to be called Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter and Greek for rock. And later on, Jesus tells him, upon you, Peter, and upon your confession, I'm going to build my church. And Peter, if you know his life at all, lived into his name in many ways. Peter was no nonsense. He was a rock, often dependable. He was a leader. But Peter could be rash. Peter displayed he didn't understand Jesus nor Jesus' mission clearly uh, very, very often, as much as at least he thought he did. In the gospel stories, we have Peter acting uh, like sand more than rock sometimes. He failed as a disciple often. His greatest failure happened on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. While Jesus is being interrogated by the high priest, Peter is keeping warm by a fire and is experiencing his own questioning. He's asked three times as he's by the fire, are you not one of Jesus' disciples? And three times Peter denies knowing Jesus. In our passage of John 21, 15 to 19, Jesus asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Now please know that Jesus is not shaming Peter with this question. Jesus is not saying, Peter, do you, do you really love me? Like really, really love me? Or do you have a sincere love for me, Peter? I'm, I'm going to ask you three times, Peter, so you can really mean it when you say it. Peter, uh, Jesus is not motivating Peter with shame, and he never motivates us with shame. Jesus is restoring Peter by rooting him in the love of God. He's inviting him three times to know, Peter, in your failure, I love you. Right before our passage, verses 1 to 14 of John 21, the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples while they're fishing. And they're, they're getting skunked on this fishing day. They're catching nothing. And so Jesus shouts out to them, hey, throw your net to the right side of the boat. They don't know it's Jesus yet. And they throw their net to the right side of the boat. And all of a sudden, they start hauling in all this fish. And then they realize this is Jesus. And Peter, the text tells us, jumps into the sea, swims to the shore to meet the resurrected Jesus. And when he gets there, Jesus has built the disciples a fire. And he serves them by cooking them fish for breakfast. I love this picture of Jesus. He is seeking out the failed disciple, not to scold him, not to condemn him, shame him, but rather to cook him breakfast and restore him in the love of Christ. When you sin. When you fail, do you really believe that Jesus wants to cook you breakfast and remind you of his love? Peter is restored here and is transformed at this breakfast and in this conversation. And there are three things that we see formed in Peter and that can be formed in us as we receive the love of Christ in the midst of our failure. The first thing formed is humility. Look at Jesus' first question to Peter. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I mean, that's a question that I'm sure would rouse anger in the other disciples, right? If I'm another disciple and I'm hearing Jesus say, does Peter love more than me? Like, how dare Jesus ask Peter that question? 
But Jesus' question is purposeful because Peter is the one who said, even if the others deny you, Jesus, I, I never will. Peter is the one who, in Jesus' offer of washing the disciples' feet, said, no, 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 Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Each of these responses reveal the pride of Peter and his failure to understand Jesus and the kingdom of God. So in this first question, Jesus is probing, is there any remaining pride? Peter, do you love me more than these? Look at Peter's response. Yes, Lord you know that I love you. Peter doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than all the other disciples. He simply says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter here being restored no longer appeals to his self-confidence. He's no longer comparing himself to the others. He's not overcompensating because of his shame. He is humble. He's repentant. He's turning away from his pride. Now notice that in order to restore and establish Peter in the love of God, Jesus addresses the failure of the denial. He doesn't act like it never happened. He doesn't ignore it. He's addressing it. In this scene of Jesus and Peter at a fire, it's almost a reenactment of Peter by the fire on the night that he betrayed and denied Jesus. The thrice-asked question, do you love me, is Jesus addressing Peter's thrice denial. But instead of condemning and shaming Peter, he's loving and forgiving him. And as a result, humility is formed in Peter. Jesus is not interested in shaming you to death for your failures and mistakes and sins. He's not interested in doing that. But he does want us to acknowledge and confess and own them so as to not live in pride. And as we do, Jesus says, I forgive you. I love you and we're restored as God's beloved. And then we live with humility, no longer cocksure of ourselves, no longer playing the prideful game of comparison, but living with humility. The second thing we see formed as one encounters the love of Christ in failure, is renewed ambition. Three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And three times, Jesus' response to Peter is, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Peter, care for my sheep. Jesus is restoring Peter to be on God's mission with a renewed ambition. Now, I can imagine that Peter felt great honor and great pressure when Jesus said, upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. As the leader of the disciples, Peter the Rock, he, he was ready for King Jesus to kick some tail and take some names. He was ready to win. He's ready for the kingdom of God to be established and for the disciples to have their rightful place of honor. But Peter fails to understand the true nature of Jesus and his kingdom. And so Jesus issues this threefold charge, restoring Peter to God's mission with renewed ambition. Listen to Jesus' charge three times. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Sheep and lambs are weak and vulnerable. So Jesus' call to Peter is not to power, it's not to celebrity status, but it's to care for the weak and the vulnerable. And then Jesus reminds Peter, Peter, these are my sheep. They're my lambs. 
They're not yours. In essence, Jesus is saying, take good care of the dear little ones that I entrust to you. When you encounter the love of Christ in, in the midst of your own brokenness and failure, your heart will break and bleed for the weak and the vulnerable. Jesus doesn't tell Peter, okay, Peter, go win the whole Mediterranean world. He simply says, give good care for the little people that I'm going to bring to you. It is in this ministry of deep caring for those Jesus entrusts to the disciples that proves to be the most effective evangelistic strategy that actually changes the world. So hear me, the resurrected Jesus is the one who brings people into the fellowship of God. Our call, our mission is to take good care of all those who, bring, who Jesus brings our way. See, Christ is at work. He's bringing people into your path all the time. People at your job, people at school, family members, neighbors. So we don't need to be so grandiose to think we're going to change the world and miss all the people God is bringing near to us. We're to be faithful and attentive and love everyone God brings our way. So Peter is restored in the love of Christ and then he's called to pour out the love of Christ. That's what happens when we encounter Jesus. We'll wanna pour out the love that we receive, but it will be with renewed ambition to love and care for the weak and the, and the vulnerable and to trust that Jesus is at work and all who he brings in our way, we're to be faithful to love and care for them. That our lives are not defined by our leadership, by our impact, by our caring, by our ministry. If we're tempted to think so, then we'll engage in this life seeking power, prestige, to be loved, to be noticed. We'll be filled with boatloads of shame thinking God loves us as we perform. And that is a recipe for disaster and we'll be in great danger to ourselves and to those God brings into our path. We're to deeply love everybody that Jesus brings our way because in our weakness, we've been loved. Humility, renewed ambition. The last thing that we see that is formed in somebody who encounters the love of Christ in the midst of failure is cruciform living. Cruciform living. Look again at our text. Jesus, again, restoring Peter, tells him, when you're old, Peter, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter would actually be crucified on a cross. So Jesus is telling Peter, I came out of a cross. You will too, Peter. I am restoring you, Peter, to walk the path I have walked. And following Jesus is always a kind of martyrdom. The road to glory is always marked by death. When we experience the deep love of Jesus in our failure, the more we understand life's just not about us. Life's not about you. It's not about me. Life is not about winning. Life is about Jesus winning. And the way that Jesus wins is through death. And therefore, we follow Jesus by laying down our lives, realizing that losing is winning and death brings life. That the path of discipleship often is painful and filled with suffering. Paul says in Galatians 
For my life has been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Hear me, it is the way we lose more than the way we win that brings God great glory. Let me say that again. It is the way we lose more than the way we win that brings God great glory. And if you feel like Jesus is calling you to something right now in your life, and you don't want to do it, I'm not saying definite, but Jesus might just be asking you to do it. When the love of Christ meets us in the midst of our failure, we are formed with a, a new desire to walk in the, this path of cruciform living, finding our great joy in God and giving God great glory as we die to ourselves and live for him. A while ago, I shared a story in a sermon that I'm going to share again about a pastor that I meet with regularly, an older pastor, and he, he tells a story uh, about him and his son when they were much younger, probably 30 years ago. And at, the, at this time, he was the, the director of a summer camp. And every week, they would have a few meetings early in the morning. And one day, he was in this meeting, and he sees his son, who's around three years old at the time, walk by the room probably four or five times, peeking in walks by, walks back by, peeks in. He sees his, sees his dad. He's looking for his dad. He's waiting for his dad to kind of see him. The three-year-old was not supposed to be roaming the hallways, right? He's supposed to be still asleep in his room. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And it went through the dad's mind, you know, maybe I should just yell at him, tell him to get back in his room. But he said, I, I, I didn't yell at him. I didn't want to interrupt the meeting. Uh, I didn't want to tell him to go back and do what I told you to do. But instead, probably the fifth time of him kind of walking by, peering into the, to the room, the dad and the son make eye contact. They lock eyes. And the dad just went like this. Come on in. And the three-year-old lit up with this huge smile. And he shouted, him loves me. Him loves me. And he ran into the room, into the embrace of his dad's arms. That's what's happening in John chapter 20. The failure Peter sees the resurrected Jesus and he runs to him. And Jesus doesn't condemn him, doesn't shame him, but cooks him a breakfast and restores him in love. And Peter leaves transformed knowing he loves me. He loves me. And so let me ask you again, how do you think God views you when you sin? How does God view you when you fail? Do you think God... It's a little bit like Andre Agassi's dad yelling at you, demanding performance, shaming you. Or do you see Jesus? And Jesus wants to catch your eye, even when you're filled with shame, especially when you're filled with shame. And he invites you to come into his arms and to be loved and restored. And it is only when the church is filled with sons and daughters who know that we are the beloved, who know that he loves us, Will we follow him with humility, renewed ambition, and cruciform living? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your love that is so high and so deep and so wide that we can't even imagine how you, God, would love us to the depths and to the core of who we are in the midst of our mistakes and failures, how we struggle how we don't live up to our own expectations, much less the, 
righteous standard that you've laid before us. But you don't condemn us. You don't shame us. You, Jesus, live the life that we could not. And you forgive and love us and restore us. You establish us in your love. And so I pray for everybody here, anybody listening, in the ways that we doubt and the, the loves that we've experienced in this world that fall short, the ways that we've been wounded and hurt, neglected. Lord, would you love us to the deepest places of our hearts so that we might know you and know that we are free, free because we are your beloved. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.